Hey, everybody. This is another episode of Closed. It's Lee Bergstein. I'm joined by Mike Flynn. It's our Thanksgiving week episode. So um, this will probably come out after Thanksgiving, but uh, here's a preemptive happy Thanksgiving to everybody. We are very excited to have with us today to talk about um, all things rent-stabilized buildings in New York City, the executive director of the Community Housing Improvement Program, Jay Martin. Um, I call it CHIP for short. Is that okay, Jay? 100%, yep. Okay. Uh, CHIP's a, a trade association that was founded in 1966, um, servicing the owners of over 400,000 rent-stabilized rental properties across New York City's five boroughs. Jay, I'm sure, is always very busy, but in the wake of the HSTPA in 2019 and the various lawsuits that have followed, uh, has been exceptionally busy. Um, I know I've seen him on Twitter quite a bit. We'll talk about that a little bit more um, later. But Jay, first off, thanks for uh, being here today and joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem. So I guess let's start. Um, you know, We've been talking about the issues confronting rent-stabilized owners for weeks on this podcast, for months on this podcast. It's been a big big source of what we've dug into. But um, we really haven't had a guest uh, who's approached the issue from your vantage point, who, who um, basically lobbies on behalf of hundreds of thousands of owners in New York City uh, who are confronting the issues surrounding rent-stabilized buildings every day. So 30,000-foot view, let's start, you know, where are we right now? Um, you know, how bad is it for owners or are we kind of at, uh, at the bottom and it, and it can only go up from here or kind of get worse? Uh, that's a good question. I think people are trying to figure that out. I think we'll know a little bit more when we see where the signature loan book ends up getting priced. Um, uh, there's some rumors about who might end up uh, winning that bid, but, uh, the numbers I just saw just before joining you on the podcast were about $500 million for a loan book of $15 billion. So that's just where the pricing is off. The FDIC is holding about a 95% share to make sure that there's there's uh, guardrails to make sure there's no liability for whoever even buys those loans. So just to give an indication about how uh, those loans are being viewed as toxic by other investors. And the reason they're they're toxic is, isn't because of anything the property owners did or anything that has happened in the market per se. And that's what's so, I guess, frustrating for property owners that we work with on a daily basis. It's hard for me to explain to them um, as someone who came before I started working at CHIP for, for 13 years with the legislature. Uh, yes, last week was actually five years with CHIP in the real estate industry. It was with 13 years in the legislature before then. So I started six months before HSTPA was passed, essentially. And what they, what, what our industry has failed to understand for a very long time is that we presume the lawmakers have negative intent um, because the, the law in 2019 was so punitive and was so bad. Um, but what I have discovered in the last five years of speaking to lawmakers and literally hundreds of meetings with them and lobbying to change the law is that it, it really comes from a lack of understanding how the housing market works, how it's functioned in New York for decades. Um, the, the motivations of a property owner, frankly, of somebody who our average owner owns their building for 20 years, um, they're not looking to buy a building and flip it. There's a long-term hold value position uh, our owners have. They want to invest in their buildings. They want to reinvest the money back that they make in their buildings. Um, 
sure, there are bad actors. And certainly the, the re- overreaction in 2019 was to a group of, we think bad actors was their motivation, but the devaluation is impacting the entire industry. And we're seeing owners now who are unable to pay their, their, their yearly operating expenses and costs because the legislature removed the, the few relief valves that existed within the prior law that allowed them to add value back into the building. Now, lawmakers look at the value add as a negative because they look at it as, well, that, that increases speculative investments. We look at value add, and this is where the education process comes in, as the ability for an owner to have enough revenue to keep the building functioning. And that is the, the massive education gap that we have tried to cross over the last few years. We're getting there. Um, you mentioned the introduction of legislation uh, when we were talking before we got on. Uh, we have worked on a bill to help with some vacancies, but we're, we're really you know, working around the edges with lawmakers and we're making baby steps when in reality, we're getting to a point in the market where we're going to need huge leaps and changes in the law to save a, a vast majority of the portfolios that are out there right now. Let's unpack that for a second, because it sounds like, uh, as opposed to other guests we've had on, you're a little more bullish as to the flexibility of legislators moving forward and or open-mindedness, so long as they can be educated, maybe there's a path. Um, is that the majority of educators or are are there kind of like a vocal minority who are just undereducated and need to kind of change so, yeah, their... Yes. Legislators, you mean? But yeah, legislators. Yeah. We're, 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 we're co-using the terms. It's fine. No yeah. problem. Educated um, legislator. Later. And uneducated. Say, uh, say, say it five times fast. and then the I couldn't even say it once. So. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, even as you were correcting him, I'll, I'll mind that. Uh, so, yeah. So, definitely, look, there is a... A hyper minority, um, I would say, of the democratic socialists who don't believe in capitalism, don't do not believe that housing, as they call it, should be commodified, um, which is just nonsensical. So they are driving a lot of the argument. The problem is uh, when you when that argument crashes upon figurative as a wave crashes upon the shores of uneducated lawmakers, which is the majority of their colleagues, it is influential. So if you haven't done the education, so when that rhetoric internally, when they're in conference and the assembly and the Senate talking to each other, then that that wave has impact. If you educate other their colleagues and the lawmakers as to the impact of the legislation, you can prevent that wave from inroading so much with the other lawmakers to just give it a visual analogy. And then outside of that process, Lawmakers at the end of the day are human beings. They want to keep their jobs, just like I want to keep my job and you all want to keep your job. So they their their end goal is to solve problems. And the problem that is growing in the rent-stabilized market is going to get to the point, the coupling of both the collapse in the commercial values and the collapse in the rent-stabilized values, the impact that that's going to have on the, on the property tax values and evaluation and base for the city of New York is going to be a problem that even if they don't agree with me or you or anyone else in the industry, they cannot ignore. And so as lawmakers, the natural gravity is for them to solve problems. What we have to do as an industry is be there when they're ready. They're finally ready to admit that it's a problem that has to be solved. And hopefully we survive long enough. Many of us survive long enough to get there that we're there with the right solutions. Um, 
because gravity will eventually take hold when the problem gets big enough. Yeah, that was, I, I think you answered the question that I had, which was, do you think that it was just, this is the amount of time it took for them to see how it was playing out. COVID obviously was a big disruptor in, in the, the plan, you know, I'm doing air quotes if anybody's not uh, watching this. Sure. Uh, but it, it sounds like that's the case that, that their willingness to come around is actually because they're seeing the reality of how this is playing out in the market. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's unfortunate because it, the, the legislative process isn't quick. It isn't quick to solve problems. And it, the solution for rent stabilized, probably the solutions we'll get into, should have probably started been working on years ago. And we have been proposing them for over two years now. Um but they, as someone said to me, a property owner said to me, six months after the law passed, they won't change it until there's blood in the streets. Well, not to be hyperbolic, but I mean, they we're looking at building values off 70% of what they were before 2019. And what what we, the, the, the difference we have to explain to lawmakers isn't, isn't the impact that has on an investor or, the pro, or on a property owner, so to speak, or even a broker because they frankly can easily dismiss that as a small group, a minority group of, of people. What we have to impress upon them is the terrible impact that that has on the quality of the housing of the people living in it, the renters, be, and tie that to their broader constituency. If we can explain to them that a building having no value whatsoever, it being essentially worthless, the ground underneath it being worth more than the building itself is bad for the renter above all else because whoever owns that property um, will have no working revenue to improve upon it. And when you're talking about an average rent-stabilized housing stock of 80 years old, uh, these are properties that are older than NYCHA, um, are older than most cities around the country, and who are regulated to a point that are higher than most cities around the country. So they need even more money, frankly, than the average uh, new building that was built within the last 10 years. So you need buildings. You have buildings that need more money, that have less money going into them, and are are uh, in a place where the value has collapsed. So that's a situation where the only solution there is to drastically change the ability for either the owner to increase their revenue, or for the government, frankly, to inject liquidity into the value of the building itself. They can do that a number of ways. One of the ways we're proposing is simply letting an owner take a vacant unit of housing, renovate it, let abate it, make it energy efficient, and collect a rent that covers the renovation costs. Um, we are at a point now where lawmakers are scared of even proposing or agreeing to laws that allow any rents to increase, even on a vacant unit of housing. So we have tens of thousands of apartments sitting around the city where an owner is losing the money regardless if it's empty or, or occupied. Um, so $700 one bedroom in the Bronx, $600 one bedroom in upper Manhattan that has been occupied for 50 years coming off occupancy. I've seen these apartments. I've walked through them. They need gut renovations. They need $150,000. They need lead abatements. They need asbestos checks. They need new windows. They need new electrical. The prior tenant vacates, dies, passes away, God forbid. They move out finally after 50 years of enjoying an ultra affordable apartment. The apartment owner must be able to increase the rent to cover the future operating costs because you cannot run 1983 or 1973 housing or, or 2023 housing with 1983 rents or 1973 rents. It just doesn't work mathematically with the property tax burden and the operating costs these, these owners are dealing with.
Yeah. So, you know, look, I think um, what you're talking about sounds like a pretty straightforward um, explanation. It's not a very sophisticated line of thinking, which I think is good. Simplifying it should make it easier to understand and to solve the problem. I'm sure you've, you've given this pitch to legislators, right? That's, that's like a big part of your job. So what is, other than I understand, but there are political headwinds, what, what, what's like the most common objection to that line of thinking? Is there a logical there objection? I'd say a majority of lawmakers understand, they agree. The way the political process works, and I'm probably letting you know more too too much information on this podcast, but yeah, let's, uh, get some in, let's get some inside of being uh, overly honest. But the way the way the legislature works is until there is a, uh, a majority of lawmakers in both houses that support a proposal, the leadership in both houses will not move a proposal. Uh, it's not unlike the government, uh, federal government. So. Yeah. You know, we are building support and we have been building a support. At the same time, the tenant groups are literally saying that proposals like ours, which will uh, add occupancy to un unoccupied apartments, will somehow deregulate the entire rent stabilized housing stock. Absolute nonsense and lies. But just the power that the tenant groups have in the voter base uh, is enough to scare lawmakers. So we're constantly dealing with that. But the way the legislature works is we have a housing chair and, and Senator Brian Kavanaugh who passed HSTPA. He, he looks at the 2019 laws as his signature achievement. So explaining to him how his law is destroying the housing market and he has to help us fix it is difficult. So he's a he's a linchpin on moving it. On the assembly side, we have Linda Rosenthal, who's the housing chair, who lives in a rent stabilized apartment for the last 25 years who has a personal motivation, and I don't blame her, for not wanting to ever pass legislation to increase rents on rent-stabilized apartments. Um, and so those two folks control housing in the legislature. And then the groundswell of support has to get up to the leadership in both the housing and the assembly. At the same time, the governor is dealing with the legislature who wants to pass something like good cause eviction, which regulates every apartment unit uh, under a cap of rent. So. All these competing factors are there. We're trying to, you know, weave our way in between them. Um, I think, and I've explained this to, to our constituency, which is the property owners, is that, you know, a grand bargain would help us uh, in the budget process, which happens in April. So January session starts at the end of this uh, end of uh, December. They'll be back in a session in January. Then the budget proposals will come out, and by April first, they're due. So during the budget process, you have an opportunity to lobby for changes to policy. And part of a grand bill, an omnibus bill could come together. They often do. And that's usually when you can get more, uh, for lack of a better term, controversial bill changes. And, I, and we're hopeful that uh, this session we will be able to move our vacancy bill. But among other things, we're dealing with uh, huge insurance increases. Um, across the board. That's weighing also on the valuations. We're seeing in upper Manhattan in parts of the Bronx, um, triple digit premium increases uh, that the providers, the insurance providers are basically attributing to um, an increase in the amount of, of liability claims, um, of slip and fall claims in those buildings in specific neighborhoods. Um, they're also dropping uh, some of our clients for having taking too many vouchers in their in their buildings. 
which would seem contradictory to the whole purpose of taking affordable housing vouchers. Um, and we're dealing with property tax increases. Uh, the way the property tax system in New York City is, is regulated is multifamily, class two, rent stabilized. There's no tax benefit to being in a rent stabilized building, and yet your, your, your revenue and your income is regulated. Um, so your property taxes essentially are uncapped. They go up um, as the value is assessed, although that's going to change, we hope, um, once the valuations are, are re rechecked. And, and you keep getting charged the same amount, um, regardless of whether or not you've collected 30% of your rent roll that year because of COVID or 100% of your rent roll that year. So your property tax doesn't change. So there's a lot of ways the legislature can help us. And I guess getting back to your point where I'm cautiously optimistic, there are very easy solutions that they could easily implement if the political will is there. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at um, one of your tweets and one of many. Uh, uh, I think I got through like November in preparation for, for this podcast episode. Couldn't get before that. But th this I thought was um, probably the, the most persuasive tweet or one that you could just show a, law a lawmaker and I think it would, it would get the message across. Can I increase the rent to cover the 3x insurance increase? No. Can I increase the rent to cover the 10x energy increase? No. Can I increase the rent to comply with the local law mandates you have passed? No. Can I increase the rent to cover the 30% property tax increase you just gave me? No. Can I increase the rent in a vacant apartment that no one is currently living in so I can afford to renovate it for the next tenant? No. That's the current housing policy of some lawmakers who are then outraged that the quality of housing is deteriorating. You know, I is one solution and it probably isn't the solution that would that would make your um, your 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 people the happiest. Um, is one solution for the government to just pay for the increases? So they don't want to they don't they don't want to increase rent because there's political fallout from that, um, and their belief is that it's going to incentivize bad actors and. Um, you're going to have tenants who are displaced. What about just what about just covering the cost of the increases? Yeah, um, look, uh, I'd say ten years ago, money owners weren't willing to have that conversation. I think we're there now. I think so many owners are. To your point, um, not all owners, but we're getting there. Um, and look, we've seen parts of the city where there's more people, and I, I think it has to be a direct subsidy. To your point. Um, we're vouchers, um, city FAP, Section 8 vouchers. People are taking more vouchers than cash residents off the street now because um, it's more reliable, frankly. And if something happens, there's recourse. Right now, we're dealing with housing court backlog of 8 to 12 months at a minimum. Um, and that that isn't because a, a property owner wants to evict and get a vacant unit. That's the opposite of what they want. They want somebody in there who there's a consistent paycheck. And that's why they're leaning more on the vouchers. So what we've attempted to do, to your point, is there's a law that was passed in 2019 or passed just last year. Apologies. Got too, a little too excited there. Um, <laughs> I knocked my camera over. Um, the, there's a law that was passed just last year that allows 610, PHL 610, that would allow nonprofits to take the full voucher amount in a, in a legal rent unit where the legal rent is below the voucher. So the voucher is already approved. So let's say you have a one, I'm a, I'm a person sitting in a homeless shelter right now. I have an approval for a voucher 
for a two bedroom for $2,800, which is completely competitive in this market in certain parts of the city. It's a little below in, you know, core Manhattan, but in, in the Bronx and in parts of Brooklyn, Queens, you can absolutely find apartments in that, in that or find owners willing to take that, that voucher amount. What the way the law works right now is that even if I have a, if I'm a property owner and that voucher holder comes to me and I have a two bedroom apartment that's vacant, that the rent is currently $1,100, I cannot take the $2,800 voucher. I have to take the $1,100. That makes no logical sense whatsoever. The $2,800 rent would actually cover the renovation cost over the span of 10 to 15 years far better than the current IAI system. So what we're, to your point, what we're proposing is a simple change to allow non-property uh, owners to take the same benefit that nonprofits currently were given last year, which is we'll take vouchers, let us set the rent to that legal rent um, that the vouchers approved to so that we can afford to renovate these units of housing. Um, I think that's the biggest disconnect too, is lawmakers simply think that property owners have a pool of money just sitting beside and they're choosing not to renovate these units, um, that they would choose uh, to forgo $700 in rent to make a point. And they don't understand that that's not $700 they're losing. It's $700 plus the cost of renovation that they're losing to put that unit back online. And it's cheaper to keep it offline than to renovate it and put it back on the market. So what it, what is, in your view, the likelihood of a measure like that succeeding? Because it sounds like a, a logical, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't solve all of your issues, but it would solve some. Um, it, would, it would bring some housing back online. It would increase supply to a, to a, to a degree. So what, what's the likelihood of success? <laughs> uh, I would say that that proposal is probably the, the highest likelihood, and it's at 50-50. I think this legislative session, we're able to get that change. I think because the approvals are already there for the voucher amounts. We we're hearing rumors that the HRA, the city organization that processes FEPS vouchers, has a backlog of thirty thousand approved vouchers waiting for housing. Um, it just makes sense. We have housing that needs to be put online. They have approved vouchers with the money that's already approved. It's just a law change and. Uh, the only benefit, the only negative is, oh, whoops, we get people out of shelters. I mean, like it, the, the, it really, there, you can't really, the political blowback would be what? Um, we're, we're clearing up more shelter space. I mean, it's like, there's no real argument against it other than, uh, there is this argument that, well, the owner will be incentivized to get more vacancies to get a higher voucher amount. That's the only argument I've heard in opposition which as you know, people who work in property, it just doesn't make any sense. The cost of getting a, an occupied unit back, the legal process, the professional operators we work with, um, th that's really, you know, the lawmakers have this impression that like a landlord is gonna go down and like bang on somebody's door and say, get out. Like they, they think it's a small property owner working environment. And a majority of our owners do not, that's just not how it operates. It's, it's a professional operation. They have front staff. They send letters. It's not this harassment mentality where you're trying to get vacancies all the time. So 
are there bad actors in the in the more smaller owner set possibly and probably and we should crack down on them but by and large that shouldn't dictate our housing policy because we're worried about a few bad people exploiting the laws we should go after them so that we can fix the laws for the majority of people who are trying to make housing work for new yorkers yeah i think i'm i think i personally am partially to to blame for this because my background is i came from the ag's office um we i was one of the first attorneys uh tasked with the tenant protection unit um that has since grown and morphed into other uh another division over there but um initially our task was investigating bad acting rent stabilized landlords who were using a variety of this is before 2019 who were using a variety of means to um displace rent stabilized tenants so they could make it vacant and convert it to market which was which was possible back then uh, not the not the unlawful uh evictions sure. but um the, the conversion was was lawful i think those stories resonate among everybody right like the, the stories of the one or two bad acting landlords who were literally you know, burning people out of buildings in order to get back their units. And it's hard to, um, it's hard to unring that bell for certain people for, for, uh, to unring the, the salacious stories. I think that's part of the task. Yeah. Right. A thousand percent agree. And, uh, and we're, we're tr attempting to do that. We've been trying to do that. Uh, we we're taking lawmakers into these units so they can see the, like the day they become vacant what it looks like and the, the service history of the apartment and um, part of our law, basically, we also have an attestment where the, the, the vacating tenant can attest that they weren't harassed when they vacated the apartment. Like we're willing to do anything we need to do to show lawmakers that these tenants willingly vacated after decades of occupancy, but we need the ability to increase the rent to cover their true operating costs. Um, and if not increase the rent, to your point, be subsidized for the difference between what the existing rent is and the operate, true operating cost is. Um, and I think what happens to your, your prior point about the stories, when I dig into these, and I often do, because um, I'm very active on Twitter, as you pointed out, I will, I will see stories of where you know, a landlord is, the perception is they're, they're acting outside of, of due, good due diligence. And, and often what we'll see is buildings with hundreds of violations on them. And then you'll look at the valuation and you'll look at the, the rents, the rent histories on the buildings. You'll ask them for the rent histories and you'll, you'll reach out to that owner and you'll try and find out what's going on. And what's happening here is we have set up a system where we've made it survival of the fittest. We've made it so that these owners in some cases, and I'm, it's not a, it's not a, I'm, I'm not making excuses for them, but it's basically they, they, the only way they can keep the buildings alive is if they're hyper aggressive yeah. in some cases. And that should be the opposite of what we should be doing. We should be incentivizing investment back into the properties. We should be incentivizing long-term tenancies. And this, the current rent stabilization system, even before 2019, I think incentivized bad actors to get those vacancies, as opposed to setting up a system that rewarded investments back into the buildings. So the overreaction from 2019, I feel, just precipitated this idea like, 
well, we don't care about the quality of the housing. We don't care about, about the, the end result of what the housing looks like. All we care about is keeping the rent at a certain level. And to that point, it's going to end up costing many renters uh, well-being, their, the long-term viability of their housing, and it's going to put the government in a much tougher spot when there aren't anyone who isn't anyone who wants to own these properties at the end of the day. Jay, one of the things we haven't talked about uh, is, is uh, you know, and, and I, I know that this is probably uh, covered in your tweets also separately, but it, it strikes me that one of the other bigger problems that's not directly caused by tax increases or local laws being passed is, is you know, owners having to refinance, essentially. Yeah. And rates obviously have gone way up. Are you seeing lenders also kind of joining you in the effort to educate I'm going to say it one more time, educate the legislator, because we all know banks don't like to be owners, right? So their remedy, if, if a payment is not made, is to foreclose. And commercial lending doesn't work the same way the residential does. We have right. five-year, 10-year notes with balloons. And if you can't refinance uh, because the, you know all of a sudden the debt service can't be met, it's over in a lot of cases. And foreclosures at some point will spike. Yeah. You seem like you were shaking your head. No, I'll let you answer that. The yeah, actual well, question was, to what extent are the lenders helping you guys? They're not, but I'm hopeful they will going forward. Um, it, it, is, it, is, it has been difficult. Um, I can remember having conversations with Signature, many conversations before they, they are no longer with us, um, to get them involved. Uh, now, you know, their, their issues sprung mostly from crypto, but uh, underlying those problems were this massive book of rent stabilized. Um, New York Community Bank has a ton of, of paper that's tied up with, with rent stabilized as well, a lot of local regional banks. And you know their, their answer before was always, we're very concerned of regulators. So getting involved politically is always a huge concern of theirs. But I have to imagine that where we are with the interest rates, the refinancing, um, because we're coming into that five-year period post-2019, to your point, um, that they're going to be compelled to start being more vocal to lawmakers about the status of these buildings. Because what we're seeing now is devaluation that goes beyond what would be presumed to be overvaluation. So you, you have buildings, you have a building that, was, that sold for $10 million. Let's say, okay, it was inflated. You knock it down to five. Even at five, you take off debt services. That building's NOI for the year is not green. It's still red. They're still not covering their expenses even before you get to debt service. So the law itself, what it did is eliminated, again, those relief valves, those one apartment every six months to two, two years that allowed them to get revenue to cover their operating losses on those units that were ultra below market. And the Rent Guidelines Board is just simply not designed to accommodate this kind of massive discrepancy between operating on the, the majority of buildings and what we're seeing now. So they're only able to do incremental increases. Even if that, they're, they're attacked mercilessly um, or by the tenant advocate groups for doing a 2% or 3% rent increase, when in reality, they're already 8 to 10% behind CPI over the last 10 years. So um, it's going to need a significant, a significant intervention at some point. It's just a matter of when and when the lenders, I think, get involved, it will help. Makes sense. 
Yeah. Nobody likes bankers either. So it's. <laughs> I think it's lawyers <laughs> and bankers right. and then landlords. I think that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Jay, we could, we could talk about this issue for a long time. I want to be respectful of your time. I guess the last question I have is put on your uh, prognostication hat. Um, and we're sitting here for another podcast five years from now to talk about the state of the, the I guess, one, the rent-stabilized market in New York City, but two, more broadly, the housing market in New York City. Where is your best guess as to where things are headed, where, where we'll be in 2028? So five years out, I don't think it looks good. I think it gets worse before it gets better, uh, especially um, in obviously our, our world rent stabilized. I think, you know, and we didn't talk about the lawsuit, but we had a challenge of the Supreme Court against the, the rent stabilization law. And it was a broad facial challenge. And it was clear that the court is looking much more for specific as applied parts of the law to take down. Um, so I'd say that's one thing that's going to happen. Over the next five years, there will be a court case that is successful in striking down part of the law. Um, there is no doubt from uh, many attorneys we have spoken, spoken spoken to, constitutional law attorneys, that this law is a taking. It's just a matter of finding the right fact pattern. So one, one, one or the other is going to happen, I think, over the next five years to the positive side of what might happen to the rent stabilization uh, infrastructure, industry as a whole, that that there will be one or two successful lawsuits that strike down parts of the law or amend it highly, um, or that were successful in changing the law with the legislature. All of those solutions, however, will not result in drastic fundamental changes and benefits within the next five years. I think those happen within the next five years, and then we'll, we'll look at the start of an upswing, uh, hopefully by 2028. All right, great. Well, um, Jay, if uh, I know where to find you, but if people out there want more of your takes, uh, where should they go on uh, social media or the interwebs to get that info? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Jay, uh, my, <laughs> my Twitter is jmar222, I believe, um, and uh, chip.nyc.org, um, chipnyc.org. Uh, is our website. Uh, yeah, that's those are the best ways to find out what I'm talking about and become a member of CHIP if you're not already so we can send you emails uh, that basically update on all this stuff on a daily basis. Well, thank you so much. You know, when I'm sure more news is going to come down the pipeline in the months and years to come, so we'll have to get you back on when, uh, when something else breaks. We appreciate it. Happy to. Yeah, thanks very much, Jay. Pleasure. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, Knowlton, and Polina on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.